At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Later in today's show, John Le Carré. He died on Saturday. He was one of the greats, author of books people called spy novels, although they were much more than that. John Powers will comment. He's critic at large on Fresh Air with Terry Gross and a big fan of Le Carré. But first, the big political book of the season is Barack Obama's memoir, a promised land. It reminds us of a time when Donald Trump barely existed in our political landscape and in our consciousness. For comment, we turn to Eric Foner. He taught American history at Columbia for a long time. He's won the Pulitzer Prize, the Bancroft Prize, and the Lincoln Prize for his work, most of which has been about Reconstruction. His most recent book is The Second Founding, How the Civil War and Reconstruction Remade the Constitution. We talked about it here. It's written widely for the New York Times op-ed page, the TLS, where he reviewed Obama's book, and The Nation, where he's a member of the editorial board. Eric, welcome back. Good to talk to you, John. The book starts early in Obama's life, and then it charts his initial political campaigns and ends about halfway through his first term with the killing of Osama bin Laden. You say Obama was lucky in life and in his political career, but it didn't look that way at the beginning. He was, you know, the black son whose father abandoned him. He was raised first by a white single mother, a grad student who took him to Indonesia, where she was doing her dissertation fieldwork. Then she sent him to live with his grandparents, his white grandparents in Hawaii. That doesn't sound lucky so far. What was the lucky part? <laughs> well, uh, I was talking more about his political career in the sense that when he ran for the Senate, uh, for example, in uh, 2004, uh, first his main opponent in the Democratic primary uh, had to withdraw because his wife had a, a brought him to court for domestic abuse. That's not good if you're running for office. And then his Republican opponent had to withdraw because um, his wife uh, charged him with uh, dragging her to sex clubs, which she didn't <laughs> want to go to. So yeah, that's that's pretty good luck if both of your main opponents have to withdraw for reasons like that. He didn't really have an opponent. At the last minute, the Republicans put up Alan Keyes, who was a complete loser. So that was good luck. Uh, but on, an, on a slightly higher level, maybe, I don't know if you call this luck, but, you know, the when he was running for president in 2008, the financial crisis hit uh, maybe a month before the election which uh, further convinced people that Obama's demand for change, you remember his slogan, change you can believe in, we can believe in, it made it pretty clear some kind of change was necessary. And it also became clear very quickly that his opponent, McCain, had uh, no idea about economics and no concept of what to do. And that kind of undermined his candidacy also. 
you know, yes, his early life was certainly not privileged in any way. It was difficult. But then uh, he's a smart guy. He when he went to college and then law school, this was really at the moment he was positioned to take full advantage of the results of the civil rights revolution. Affirmative action, if you want to call it that, although I don't like to use that term because it suggests he wasn't really qualified. He's about as qualified as you can get. But Columbia, where he was an undergraduate, Harvard Law School, these places just hadn't accepted black people before, pretty close to when Obama got in. Now they were looking for talented black students for the first time in their career. And Obama was well positioned to take advantage of that. So it's luck and skill together that uh, gets you <laughs> gets you success. Did uh, you and Obama ever cross paths when he was a student at Columbia? Well, you know, when I when he was became famous uh, or became a national figure of some kind, I raced back to my uh, court, my my little books uh, listing all the students in each of the courses I taught and what grades they'd gotten. And uh, I discovered that uh, this was one of the mistakes he made in his career. He never took my course on the Civil War and Reconstruction. Uh, and in fact, his, uh, so I never met or saw or at least had any knowledge of Obama. I might have bumped into him somewhere on campus. But um, his record, his um, transcript from Columbia was under lock and key. It probably still is. Nobody knows what courses he took. In his, one of his memoirs, he does say he took Edward Said's course on the Middle East, which he didn't like very much, according to his memoir. But other than that, I don't know. He didn't, uh, I don't know what he was doing uh, in terms of coursework at Columbia. Well, the excerpt of his book that I read was beautifully written, especially the parts about his family and what you call small but touching moments. I wonder if you had any favorites. Uh, yeah, he's a very good writer. And, you know, most presidential memoirs are written by uh, ghostwriters, basically. Uh, it's not totally surprising. We don't tend to think of Gerald Ford or Reagan uh, as uh, literary stylists, really. Uh, I read somewhere that uh, Donald Trump has not ever read a book, including those that he supposedly wrote. But uh, he's a, Obama's a very good uh, writer. And yes, these little, the, the shifting back and forth between the family life and public issues is done quite well in the book, I thought. You know, one uh, little episode that I did mention was he, uh, there were these two African-American butlers who took care of the White House and they served dinner to the family and they said, they stood, you know, after he was, or they came in like tuxedos, formal address to serve dinner. And uh, Obama, after a while, Obama said, you know, you don't really have to do that. We don't get dressed up for dinner that way usually. Uh, you could just wear more casual attire. And one of them said, no, no, we want to make sure you are treated exactly the same as all the previous presidents. Huh. All the white presidents have been served dinner with by guys in tuxedos. Obama should be served dinner that way also. I thought that was a revealing little thing on these two guys who worked in the White House for many years. We all know Obama was our first black president. It was a huge historical achievement. And frankly, a scary one. We all knew how many people hated him for being black and that some wanted to see him killed. What does he say about the, the threats to his life? He talks a little about that, but not much. What he, what he says was that, uh, really almost nothing, he says that black voters in the primary, of course, you remember 2008, he versus Hillary Clinton, the whole primary campaign for the Democratic nomination, 
And he said that he felt that the beginning black voters were worried for him. They almost didn't want him to win because they were sure he'd be assassinated like Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and many other people had been. Once they came to the conclusion that he might actually win and that many white people were behind him, uh, black voters, remember he won the Iowa caucuses in 2008, which Iowa has like three or 4% black population. So you obviously have to appeal to a broader segment of the voting population there. Uh, but he doesn't really talk about threats to his life. He does mention somewhere that the Secret Service said that he'd had more, th that more threats to his life than any other president that they'd encountered. But he doesn't talk about fear. He doesn't talk about his family being frightened. Uh, of course, their life was restricted. Like any president, his daughters had burly, you know, Secret Service men going to school with them every day, grade school. Uh, this uh, cuts into spontaneity, I suppose. But um, he doesn't talk about that. In fact, one of the things I found odd about the book, although I like the book, is he doesn't really talk about what it meant to be the first black president. Mm. What kind of constraints did that put on him? You know, he was very cagey or, you know, about talking about race at all. He seems to have concluded that if he talked about race, people would resent it. Of course, there was his famous speech during the campaign after the Reverend Jeremiah Wright right. incident where he directly addressed the nation, i.e. white people, about yeah. race in America. What does he say about that speech, which was very highly regarded at the time? What do you say about that speech? There are a number of times where Obama talks about talking about race. That is one big example. And the second one is with uh, Henry Louis Gates Jr. when he was uh, arrested, remember, trying to break into his own house because he couldn't find the key. And uh, Obama said, well, that was stupid of the police to arrest a guy walking with a cane. He didn't look like a burglar, really, you know. But Obama says, you know, I couldn't believe anyone would take this seriously. Why should anyone care that I said that uh, it was stupid with him or that Jeremiah Wright, yes, he, I was in the church that he was the pastor, but I didn't make these speeches that Jeremiah Wright did about racism in America. But it, he quickly discovered, maybe he was naive, that um, these incidents just grew and grew and grew. He couldn't get away from them. And uh, many white people seem to resent these things happening. And so he had to address them. He addressed the, um, the right. He says he wanted to explain why black people are angry sometimes. But he also wanted to explain why white people feel aggrieved. It wasn't quite clear what they were aggrieved about, except the fact that you had a black guy running for president. But this is typical Obama. He's trying to be the middle ground. He's trying to balance both sides, appeal to both sides. That, that's how he presents himself throughout the whole book. That's his self-image, the, the middle ground guy with ideals, but actually you can't really implement those ideals very much uh, because you're always seeking consensus uh, uh, and trying to satisfy everybody. Personally, I thought that Jeremiah Wright's speech was not a very good one. I thought it, that it sort of created an equivalent between black responses to racism in American history, uh, equivalent, and then white responses to being accused of racism, it's not an equivalent, you know, it, it's, it's a little tone deaf about the realities of American history. That succeeded. He does say about the Skip Gates thing, where he then invited the policeman and Gates, you know, to have a beer at the White House, and they're all very chummy. But he says his popularity ranking rating as president suffered its biggest hit after the Gates uh, incident. Mm, 
Amazing. Yes, that he really had to be careful saying or doing anything about race. It will be interesting in the next volume how he deals with the Trayvon Martin. Yeah. Remember, at a press conference vis-a-vis -vis Trayvon Martin, who was killed, he says, you know, all of us Black parents have to talk to our children about how to deal with issues like this, how to deal with police, how to deal with assault. And a lot of people say, no, what do you mean? Black people aren't in any danger from police. What are you talking yeah. to? You know, and again, he thought that was so obvious that uh, how could anyone object to that? But in fact, uh, a lot of white people resented it. So uh, I can well understand why he tried not to say very much about race, although some black people were disappointed that he didn't really confront more directly the racism in the society. In writing this book, Obama knows how disappointed progressives like us are with what he actually accomplished. And one of the main purposes of this book is to respond to his progressive critics. What's his general defense of himself? His general sense is that they didn't know what they were talking about. Obama seemed, comes across, I mean, as I said, I like the book. I think it's revealing in many ways, well-written. But Obama comes across with a pretty thin skin. When progressives criticize him, they're, they're carping. They're complaining too much. They're utopian. You know, they want everything. They don't know how to deal with politics. Politics is the art of the possible. He's the pragmatist, which is funny because he ran as an idealist. He didn't run as a guy, well, I'm going to find the middle ground. But that's, that wasn't his campaign slogan. He just doesn't seem to like the progressives in his own party, the single payer people or the people who wanted a public option or the people who wanted more action against the banks uh, and Wall Street in the aftermath of the financial crisis. Basically, his position is I did whatever what was possible. And therefore, these guys are just uh, unrealistic. Now, you know, that's a totally circular argument. How do you know that what Obama did was the only thing that was possible? Well, it's because Obama did it. And he's a pragmatist. But there are a lot of places in which he wasn't that pragmatic. I mean, he came in thinking he could you know, work with the Republicans, remember everything would be bipartisan, and he'd get all sorts of points. He didn't, none, of, none of that worked out. He was completely unrealistic in his assessment of what the balance would be between uh, working with the Republicans and them just trying to undermine everything he did. So a lot of the book is couched <laughs> in terms of uh, criticism of those who uh, in his own party who would disaffect it. Once in a while, he will step back, not very often and say, like particularly on the, the dealing with the financial crisis, maybe I should have been bolder, he says at one time. That, that's a very unusual thing in this book. The book, 700 some odd pages, very, very rarely is he introspective in that way, or does he, in the way the book is written, it's in the moment, 2010, 2011, 2012. It's not Obama looking back on the moment from eight years later and saying, did I do the right thing? Did I not do the right thing? He's not thinking it through that way. He's trying to tell you what it was like to be there and make decisions at that moment. That's legitimate, but I think a lot of people would like to know what Obama thinks today about yeah. how this period of his presidency actually uh, you know, worked out. Well, as I said at the opening, one of the most fascinating things about this book is it's about a period when Donald Trump barely existed on the political landscape. He does appear at the end of the book. During the Deepwater Horizon oil spill in the Gulf, Obama says Trump called to suggest that 
he be put in charge of plugging the well to stop the leak. And when Trump was told that the well was almost sealed, then Trump offered to build a beautiful ballroom on the White House grounds. And this was before Trump endorsed the birther lie or took any of those stands. How does Obama treat all this? Well, of course, uh, <laughs> at the time, he must have thought this was just absurd. And now looking back, uh, anything Trump does is an indication of Trump's utter egomania. You know who actually is dealt with a lot in this book is Sarah Palin, mm. who Obama sees as a kind of minor league Trump or maybe a precursor of Trump with her lack of knowledge of anything, but also the way she whipped up these rallies and generated all the hatred against the media, hatred against liberals, spewing out insults. Sarah Palin, he feels, had sort of pioneered a methodology of politics that Trump uh, then picked up and multiplied to the nth degree. But there's very little about Trump, and I think that's good. Forget about Trump. Forget about Trump. Eric Foner. Thank you, Eric. This was great. Nice to talk to you. John le Carré died on Saturday. He was 89 and one of the greats, author of a couple of dozen books that people called spy novels, although they were much more than that. For comment, we turn to John Powers. He's critic at large on Fresh Air with Terry Gross, where he's heard on more than 600 NPR stations with 5 million listeners, plus millions of more on the Fresh Air podcast. We reached him today at home in Pasadena. John, welcome back. Oh, nice to be here, John. Well, what was your introduction to John le Carré? Okay, well, I was 12 years old and a lover of James Bond. I thought he was the acme of sophistication. And I was not necessarily wrong to have thought that because John F. Kennedy seemed to think that he was the acme of sophistication as well. And I loved them because, you know, it had the beautiful women who were who you could do anything you wanted with and you, you, you even kill them afterwards if necessary. And you, you know, you, you were flying off to exotic places and doing fun stuff. And I, and I was loving them and praising them. And my, my friend Paul Allen's brother was just back from his first year at Harvard. And he gave me a copy of the spy who came in from the cold and said, here's the real thing, kid, you know, putting me in my place. And then, I, and then what was interesting was I didn't like it. You know, because I, I was 12 years old. And, you know, and when you're 12 years old, John le Carre is too sophisticated. I mean, I mean I, even now I talk to people who say that they tried to read le Carre and they find the plots too complicated. Oh. But nevertheless, I mean, for a 12-year-old, he was just too much. Yeah, well, you know, I remember reading for the first time The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. I was not 12 years old. I was much older. And you know, the whole story centers around the Berlin Wall. And I have to say, it had the most devastating ending of any book I've read before or since, I think. I mean, it's it's really different from what most adventure stories are like. Maybe we start with the fact that it, when, like, one, maybe Le Carre's great theme is betrayal. And so this is a, a, a thing where a man, you know, where the hero, Lemus, pretends to be betraying the Secret Service by, by moving over to the other side of the Berlin Wall in order to betray somebody. And in the process of this, he winds up you know, betraying a woman also. 
You know, I mean, he doesn't know he's betraying it, but there are all these levels with betrayal within betrayal within betrayal, which is which is the Le Carre thing. But it is the one that has has genuine power at the end. And pop culture stuff usually has a little pop, which you know, that's why it's called pop. You know, so it, it, it it's the pop of pop culture. But Le Carre actually had genuine emotion, and this was he created a world, and you were inside it, and then it was so dark, and it's, it's the quintessential. Berlin Wall story, I think. Well, it was clear from the from the very beginning of Le Carre in Spy Who Came In From the Cold that he did not buy into the prevailing Cold War ideology. Spies were not heroes. We were not the good guys in a worldwide struggle defending freedom against tyranny. Our side was full of, as you say, hypocrisy, betrayal, stupidity. And the spies on the other side we come to learn in his other novels, especially Carla, were sort of like us. And his conclusion was pretty clear. In fact, he wrote in the new introduction to his classic work, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, that uh, pretty much everything the MI6 and the CIA did were useless or worse, quote, they would have done much less damage to their countries, moral and financial, if they had simply been disbanded, close quote. But it wasn't really his ideology that made him a great writer. It was his characters, his plots, his sentences, and especially his unforgettable, what should we call him, alter ego, George Smiley. Yes. Well, I mean, George Smiley is probably the greatest of all spy, spy heroes, Probably because he's gray and he's all-knowing except for the fact that he, 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 he's so all-knowing that he knows his wife's constantly cheating on him, but not, but not powerful enough to be able to stop it. He is the person who is infinitely patient, who goes through details, who is a sieve for all sorts of information, whose affect tends to be neutral but kind, and yet who in the course of the novels does all sorts of unkind thing to people, costing them their lives in some cases be because of the things he's doing in a rather bland way. But he's brilliant and we identify with him. And we identify with him because he's the seeker after the information. And, and we, we, we join him in the search for the information. And because the search for the information is fascinating, we somehow impute to him a fascination that he may not have. He is in, in many ways such a human character, partly because he's not spectacular in any way, but he's exceedingly good at his job. I mean, you could imagine him in another life being the world's greatest actuary or, or insurance investigator or something. But, but in the spy context, he's spectacular, but he's without being spectacular. And the task that he is given in the greatest Smiley book, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, is to find the mole. Apparently, this was a term that Le Carre himself invented, and this was one of Le Carre's sort of enduring preoccupations, the double agent. He knew about Kim Philby, the great mole in MI6, sort of the inspiration for this book, and he said what's fascinating to him about the mole is that he has to do this balancing act. He has to be the best person working for his ostensible employer. He has to have triumphs that make him notable and honored. But at the same time, he has to do his job for his real employer, which is to undermine and destroy everything he has worked on 
for his ostensible employer. It's a complicated situation, and it's one that Le Carre and Smiley were obsessed with. Oh yes, well, no, I mean, it, I mean, it is the it, it is the great obsession, you know, and it, of the I mean, the double agent is in fact I think such a powerful notion because we feel that probably in our daily lives we're surrounded by people who are, who may not be working in the direction they seem to be, people who aren't wholly committed to the prospect at hand. Anyone who's ever felt betrayed has thought, oh, this this person has smiled and gone along with being my friend, and they weren't. So you take that kind of ordinary thing and then you expand it into geopolitical and bureaucratic terms. You know, and one of, and one of the great things about about the about the smiley search for for the mole is that it takes you inside the bureaucratic workings of, of the spy business. And Lacare was great at creating a world with its own terminology. I mean, mole is, is the most famous. I mean, but he has like his lamp lighters. You know, and he, he makes you feel that you're in this entire thing that's been so densely imagined. And then you're picking your way through and there are rules and, and regulations and there are people you've been working with for years. And then you have people who know the lore. I mean, it, it's all brilliantly conceived that Smiley is gradually, you know, trying to work his way through. And it's really exciting when you finally get there. Um, and Tinker Taylor even has one of the great endings of who the spy is with the spy's explanation of how he got away with it, which, which I would never reveal to people. But... <laughs> His explanation for how he got away with it is so great that you realize that in addition to all of his other virtues, Lakari is one of the great plotters. You don't get to have 20 bestsellers if you, if you aren't telling stories that are sophisticated and complicated. If you're going to be doing what he's doing, the plots have to be really good, and they are really good. The twists are really good. I mean, Spike came from the cold, offers the first great twist, but a lot of them have it. The follow-up to Tinker Taylor's Smiley's People also has, you know, great plot twists. And you're catching, you know, people's weaknesses are revealed in interesting ways. Um, I, mean, he's, I mean, he's really good at all of that. Then there's another of his most famous books, which is not a Smiley story, which is, has sort of the opposite of Smiley. His character, Magnus Pym, who's the central figure in A Perfect Spy, 1986. Magnus Pym is supremely confident, charming, winning, women love him, we admire him. And I noticed Philip Roth called A Perfect Spy the best English novel since the war, which is kind of an astounding thing to say about any book. But uh, A Perfect Spy, actually, there is a secret to A Perfect Spy. What is it? Oh, yeah. Well, the secret is that, you know, that the hero of it is the son of a confidence man and criminal a kind of larger than life, almost Dickensian crook. And in fact, Jean Le Carre, you know, David, his father, Ronnie Cornwall, was that man. You know, the, a perfect spy is this, is basically Le Carre telling the story of his own childhood with, with the charming confidence man who is a crook, who's ripping people off, but who's so good at he's a, actually able to run for parliament as, 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 a, as a confidence man. And who puts the young Le Carre to work, doing some of his dastardly work, you know, helping to cheat people, helping to not pay bills in places. I mean, Le Carre actually was kind of the, the servant as a young man of this confidence man, which leads to both A Perfect Spy being a terrific book, but also leads, I think, to his sense of not trusting anybody, 
I mean, he's very good at seeing things like spy agents as confidence games themselves. You know, so it's like when he's saying that, that the spy bill didn't really accomplish anything, but they're, they're able to convince people they accomplish things. And, and you can imagine with that kind of background, with your father as a con man who's been using you, how it makes you skeptical of everything. But he has a lot of the dad skills as well. Because the, the dad being a, a, a rogue, but Lakari was a famous mimic. And one of the things in his writing is he does voices probably better than anybody since Dickens. You hear the people talking. He can, he can give you the drawl of an aristocratic person in the, in the foreign ministry. But his working class people actually don't sound like stage working class people. They sound like working class people because he had a fantastic ear. And I think this was probably part of being being surrounded by all that and like listening to people and learning how to work them and the whole thing. After the Berlin Wall fell, after the end of the Cold War, people said, poor old Le Carre, he's run out of material. They've taken his wall away. And the New York Times obit said, uh, quote, if Mr. Le Carre painted his Cold War world in shades of gray, his subsequent books seemed increasingly black and white. This is a criticism. And I kind of think the conventional view is, yeah, he went downhill when he lost his great subject. I wonder if you agree with that. He didn't go downhill. I, I, I think he did have a great subject. And, he, and part of the greatness of the subject was that readers liked reading about that subject. And so sudden, suddenly his spy agency wasn't quite the same and the language was different. So you kind of felt cheated of your imaginary world. The books are up and down. Some of them are more black and white. I think in particular, the ones after September 11th, that there was a hatred for American spies and what America was doing that skewed things for several years. I mean, he was just angry about it. And I think what was curious was he never seemed he never seemed angry in that way about the Cold War stuff. He probably got a little bit older, got a little bit crankier. His disapproval of what was going on in the Cold War with, with the spy agencies was less ideological than his criticisms of the spy agencies later. That said, a bunch of the books are really, really good. Even some of the bad ones have great plots. You know, they keep you going. You know, I mean, you know, the night manager is is the closest he ever came to writing a James Bond book, I think, with, you know, with the supervillain arms dealer and the hero who actually gets in fights and does all that sort of stuff and has the beautiful woman. Uh, all the, it, 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 that's the closest. But it's still a terrifically good book and became a terrifically good TV show. A lot of people say our kind of traitor in 2010 was his return to form. Yes, no, it was return to form. But you know, but along the way, even you know, when you when he was doing the little drummer girl, which I remember not liking so much when I'd read it at the time, probably because I felt cheated of Smiley and all the rest. The little drummer girl is a good book, and it's it is so complicated because you know Lakari was a lover of Israel, and yet he didn't dislike the Palestinians at all. I mean, they're they're very their situations very sympathetically represented. Partly because also he was a researcher, and it, by that point he was so famous that you know if you're if you're I mean Lakari is one of the few people who actually could just like have could have terrorist type people say oh sure we'll tell you about what we do. <laughs> You know, that's not an and that's not a call you and I can make. You 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 know you can't actually get Mossad people 
to tell you stuff they do just because they like your book so much. You know, but but he got that. You know, and you know, I, the constant gardener actually is you know is an interesting thing about drug companies. You know, he wrote interesting th- books about interesting things. He wrote about the banking, about bankers and and their dealings. He wrote about about Russian oligarchs. He wrote about the Congo. You know, I mean, he was interested in lots of places, you know, and not all of the books are equally good, but not all of the Cold War books are equally good. Writers are allowed to write lesser books along the way. I mean, I, I you know, I, I mean, it was very funny how he and, you know, Likari and Rushdie had a huge falling out. And Likari was, was on the wrong side of like defending Rushdie, partly because Rushdie had panned one of his books, I think. Mm. Um, you know, but, but in fact, as much as I've liked Rushdie over the years, I would rather have John Le Carre than, than than Salman Rushdie. I think he actually says more about the world that's interesting to me than Rushdie does. One last thing that I especially appreciate about John Le Carre, and that is his reluctance to do interviews to promote his books. He said talking about his own books uh, was quote making bird noises. <laughs> And since you and I are in the business of being on the radio, we we know what he means. Oh, oh we, we do know. And, and and what's also what's so funny about it is when you hear him interviewed, you know, he has a lovely voice. You know, he speaks incredibly well. His bird noises would be spectacularly <laughs> marvelous raconteur. And, and the thing is. I, along the way, I, I know some literary critic types have said that like his sentences aren't as great as so and so. I mean, I think he, I think he's an incredibly good writer. You know, line by line, I think no one who's written popular fiction probably has ever been a better writer than John Le Carre. I once was asked by somebody what was I thought was the greatest English novel, and I thought I wasn't sure. I thought you know, I, I, it would change with me, and like To the Lighthouse might be it. <laughs> Yes. But if you ask me the one I like best, if I'm being honest, it's Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. It's my favorite English novel. And I'm and I think that it's as good as almost everything that people might say is better. John Powers, critic at large on Fresh Air with Terry Gross. John, thanks for talking with us about John Le Carre today. I'm very happy to do it. One more thing. We've got a special deal on subscriptions to The Nation just for our listeners. For more progressive journalism and to support our show, please subscribe online. You can save over $30 a year on a digital subscription to the magazine and get unlimited digital access for just $14.95. To subscribe, visit thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. That's thenation.com slash podcast subscribe, one word. Again, this deal is only available to podcast listeners. So if you're enjoying the show, please become a subscriber. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of the nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of the nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. 
You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.